Good morning. So as you can see, I'm not in the sanctuary this morning, and neither are you. This is not a live stream event because of the governor's executive order this past week. We pre-recorded elements of the service and then decided that we also wanted to do our part in just staying home for the sake of others. So the worship was recorded on Tuesday night before the stay-at-home order was put into effect. And we're also hoping that by launching this as a video this week instead of a live event that we will eliminate some of the technical issues we had last week. In addition, just to keep you up to date on things, we're telling our staff who can uh, go and work for home to do so. And as these restrictions seem to change from day to day, we continue here at ECC to explore more ways to connect with one another. So once again, I just want to tell you the best way you can stay up to date on these things is to go to ecclife.net, click on the How to Connect button, and sign up for some of our options. And in particular, I would suggest our e-letter. That's where a lot of information is found, and that goes out at least once, sometimes twice a week to keep you up to date. <clears throat> So this morning, I'm speaking to you from my basement. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if you hear my dogs go crazy in the background, let's just think of them as the equivalent of uh, cell phones going off during the sermon, shall we? In the 1930s, the Nazis were marching across Europe. And at that time, there was a group of artists who met regularly to ask the question, how can one think about planting roses when the world is burning? How can one think about planting roses when the world is burning? How can, burning, how can we make beautiful things when the world is falling apart? And I imagine to them it may have felt like the end of the world. And I imagine there are people who feel that way these days too. If that describes you, how would you answer that question? Put a little differently for our purposes. Does it do any good to create or do beautiful things in the midst of such a crisis? Does it do any good to do or create beautiful things in the midst of such a crisis? Does, does it really matter? Is it really important? In Mark 14, which we just heard read, a woman comes into the home of Simon, where Jesus and others were having a meal. And she breaks open an ex a very expensive jar of perfume and she pours it over Jesus' head. And it, that's a strange, things to, uh, a strange thing to us, but what did Jesus say about it? In the midst of everyone's criticism of the woman's wasteful act, Jesus says this. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The word translated as beautiful could mean noble or morally good, but its primary meaning is beautiful to look at. Beautiful to look at. In other words, it was, in a sense, a work of performance art, at least to the woman, a work of art that speaks a necessary truth into a difficult and painful situation, as we will see. And that is our good news this morning. Jesus gives us reason <clears throat> for worship and devotion, even in the, in the worst of times. Jesus gives us reason for worship and devotion, even in the worst of times. What strikes me about this event is that it takes place right after Mark 13, which is full of dark, ominous statements that seem to be about the end of all things. Furthermore, this, this beautiful thing, this, this work of art the woman has performed, is sandwiched between the chief priests and the teachers of the law, scheming to kill Jesus in verses 1 and 2. And then down in verses 10 and 11, Judas making a deal with them to do just that. We might want to ask this woman, what is the use of planting roses while the world is burning when such painful things are going on in, in uh, the life of Jesus and his disciples? But somehow she knows. She knows that Jesus alone is the reason for worship, devotion, and beauty, even in the worst of times, perhaps especially in the worst of times. In Mark 13... 
it does appear that the world is burning or will be burning shortly. I was supposed to preach on this passage a couple of weeks ago, but when the coronavirus pandemic hit, I felt the need to preach something different that week. And this meant then that we would have to skip over something we planned to preach on in order to continue and keep Mark, the Gospel of Mark preaching series on schedule. However, I forgot something. I forgot about those daily scripture emails that go out every day. Uh, and so a few previously scheduled emails, including some of these apparently dark and threatening words from Mark 13, went out and landed in people's email boxes. And a couple of people asked that we might make a change in those emails as these passages were rather disturbing given the current climate. So we did. But now, as we come to this morning, I feel the need to address some of what's going on in chapter 13 on our way to a better understanding of the power of chapter 14 and the beautiful thing this woman does. After all, based on some of the stories, I don't know if this is true for you, but it has been for me, uh, the stories that pop up on my newsfeed over the past couple of weeks, there are people asking if somehow we are in fact in the end, end times even now. Are we? How would you answer that question? So I have two questions that I hope to answer this morning. Does it do any good to create or do beautiful things in the midst of such a crisis? And are we, in fact, in the end times right now? Well, we can't really dive too deeply into Mark 13, but I do want to point out some important places that give us resounding clues as to what exactly Jesus is talking about here. Now, to keep it all in context, in, in the story of Jesus, we are somewhere between Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Holy Week and Maundy Thursday where uh, Jesus institutes Holy Communion or the Eucharist. This is right before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. If there are important things to be said, Jesus knows those things need to be said now. So chapter 13 is, in a sense, some of Jesus' famous last words. So we do need to listen to these words. And the most important clue as to how to understand Mark 13 is actually in the first four verses of Mark 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now, depending on which scholar you talk to, all or nearly all that follows these first four verses answers the questions asked by the disciples. When will the temple be destroyed? When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to happen? Again, as a matter of context, Jesus uttered these words around 33 AD, and Mark wrote these things down, we think, around 66 AD. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So as Mark's readers read what is written here, they were very aware, very aware of the times in which they found themselves. Jesus' words were very relevant for them and their situation. Everything Jesus says from chapter 13, verse 5 through verse 23 is clearly, in, in, uh, in the opinion of most of the scholars that I consult, is clearly about the coming destruction of the temple. Now let me just point out a couple of details to show you what, what I mean. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus warns of all sorts of things, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines. But he says very clearly in verse 7 that such things must happen, but the end is still to come. In other words, all this may seem like the end of the world, but they are really only the beginning of birth pains. The end is not yet. 
In verses 8 through 13, Jesus then warns them that in the persecution running up to the destruction of the temple, they're going to be flogged, they're going to be put on trial, they're going to be betrayed by their own family members, and some of them will even be put to death. And these kinds of things actually happened prior to and around 70 AD. You see, Jesus is still answering their questions from verse 4 about the signs that the temple would be destroyed, which the disciples may well have understood as a sign of the end of all things too. Verse 14, verse 14, Jesus says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, and then Mark, not Jesus, Mark adds a clarifying statement, let the reader understand, that part should not be in red letters if you have a red letter edition. Mark says, let the reader understand, then Jesus continues, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, the abomination that causes desolation is a quote from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27, where it is likely a reference to the ruler we've mentioned before in this series, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who sacrificed a pig in the temple about 200 years before Jesus. See, everyone knew where Jesus got this phrase. And apparently, there was something similar going on in the lives of Mark's first readers because then Mark interjects, let the reader understand. In other words, pay attention. You all already know what Jesus is talking about. It's already happening, right? Mark's readers were likely under persecution already. This word is for them, but it's not a word about the end. It's a word about the persecution they were facing in the run-up to the destruction of the temple. The end is not yet, remember? Furthermore, what good will it do for anyone to flee to the mountains in verse 14 where are you going to run if it's the end of the world, right? Nowhere. There's nowhere to go. This is about fleeing the persecution that led to the destruction of the temple. And what follows in verses 20 to 23 actually happened. False messiahs did appear. People were deceived. And all of this was to warn them to be on their guard, to watch out. Then things get a bit tricky in how best to interpret Mark 13, verses 24 to 27. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. I mean, that sure sounds like the end times there, doesn't it? And some of it may be just that, or it may not. Jesus quotes from two places there. In Isaiah 13, 13, God speaks a word of judgment against Babylon. And then in Isaiah 34, 4, he speaks a word of judgment against the nations in those two verses. But in particular, he's speaking against Edom over in Isaiah 34. So God's words through Isaiah were not about the end times. They were directed to Babylon and to Edom. They were aimed at the times in which they were written. And Jesus then combines these two verses from different prophetic words in the book of Isaiah to create an effective, powerful metaphor of apocalyptic proportions. I mean, after all, stars do not literally fall from the sky anyway. The universe doesn't work that way. This language is not to be taken literally. This is hyperbolic, apocalyptic language. It gets people's attention. It's the way these kinds of catastrophic events were talked about in that day. What is about to happen is going to be so amazing that it will have a cosmic impact, Jesus says. You know, ancient writings were not as neatly divided up as we might like for our, from our modern point of view. So, for example, while it appears that Jesus is talking about something that's way off in the future somewhere after the destruction of the temple, there are still several hints, several hints 
in the next couple of paragraphs that point to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, the passion narrative, which is only a few days away. For Mark and Jesus, the truly cataclysmic, the truly cosmic event will be the death of the Son of God, Jesus' crucifixion. When the sun will be darkened, as in verse 24, for example, is exactly what happens later in verse 33 of chapter 16. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Scholar N.T. Wright thinks that all of this is still about the coming destruction of the temple, that, that the references about the, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory is really Jesus talking about his own ascension after his death and resurrection. So that is, he's saying, the Son of Man comes to God in power and glory as he ascends. Other scholars remind us that the glory of God is displayed, revealed most clearly, most powerfully in Jesus' coming crucifixion. The references to angels there, uh, angels gathering his elect from the ends of the earth, says N.T. Wright, should really be translated as messengers, not angels, messengers who go out and preach the gospel and bring people to Christ. Now, I'm not personally totally decided on exactly how to interpret all of these verses. It could be either about Jesus' uh, coming crucifixion, it could be about the end times, <clears throat> or it could be a little bit of both. But that's not even the point. That's not even the point. If we want to get to the point, we have to read on. Whatever is going on in verses 24 to 27 of chapter 13, it appears that in verses 28 to 31, Jesus is again talking about the temple and its destruction. Just as a fig tree in bloom tells you summer is coming in verse 29, even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it, the destruction of the temple, you know that it is near right at the door. The temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. All of the signs Jesus has shared so far point to that reality. Furthermore, Jesus adds in verse 30, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. First, this generation is exactly what it sounds like. In the Bible, the generation is about 40 years, and that's almost exactly the time between what Jesus says here and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. He's not talking about the end of all things. He's talking about the temple. He's answering the question asked by the disciples, uh, disciples back in verse 4. Second, when they, they, they asked, when will these things happen? And Jesus uses that frame, same phrase in verse 30, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. That phrase, these things, that ties these things together. And then when he adds um, in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's not prophesying about the end of the earth and the end of the heavens. He's using hyperbole to state how important these words are. What I'm saying to you is going to come true even if everything else passes away. And then in this last section of Mark 13, Jesus concludes. Let's read verses 32 to 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. 
Jesus ends with a parable of sorts that again seems to lean toward more immediate events. Jesus coming crucifixion. And the parable is Jesus' way of saying that they need to be prepared, alert, and awake to the things that are going on around them. And this part to me is, is fascinating. I want you to note the references to the need to stay awake, to the threat of falling asleep, and to the times of day, evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, and dawn. Late in the week, on Monday, Thursday, they will share the Lord's Supper together in the evening, right? At night, they will go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays, where Jesus is betrayed and arrested, and there the disciples will fail to keep watch. They will fall asleep. When the rooster crows, what happens? Peter will deny Jesus. When the rooster crows, Peter denies Jesus, and then at dawn, Jesus will be brought before Pilate. So Jesus may well be warning them not only about the destruction of the temple, but about his own arrest and crucifixion, which may then be one of the signs that the temple will eventually be destroyed. An answer to their original question, what will be the sign that these things are about to be fulfilled or about to happen? I realize that all that doesn't really do justice um, to everything that is in Mark chapter 13, and there are certainly some points we could continue to talk about and argue, but we don't have the time this morning. What I hope is I hope that it gives you enough information to see that there's ample reason to consider why Mark 13 might not be all about the end times at all, though some of it might. Some of it might. When it comes to passages like this one then, the answer to the question of whether or not we are in the end times with the current coronavirus pandemic is no. We are not in the end times. But in truth, the fuller answer to the question of whether or not we are in the end times is yes, we are. How can both be true? And one of the reasons Mark includes this challenging teaching by Jesus is because in a very real sense, we are always in the end times. Think about that. In a very real sense, we are always living in the end times. There is always a need to stay awake. There is always a need to be alert and to be on guard. Why? Because crises will come and go. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines are a part of life on a fallen planet. So are viruses. We may not be handed over to local councils and flogged for our faith, but we sure may find our faith tested by restrictions and quarantines and executive orders and the economic fallout. And therefore, we need to stay awake, even in the midst of difficulty, anxiety, fear, panic, and heartache. We need to stay awake, and we need to be prepared to worship Jesus anyway. Because Jesus alone is the reason for our worship and devotion, even when it may seem to us like it's the end of the world. It's true for us, and it was true for Jesus. For in the same way that Mark's first readers were experiencing heartache, Jesus did too. But in the midst of that, there is something beautiful going on from which we can all learn. So not only do we need to stay awake, we need to plant roses. We need to create and do beautiful things. We need to pour out extravagant devotion to Jesus even now, friends. What others see as wasteful, Jesus sees as beautiful. This, this woman does not know what she is doing in terms of Jesus approaching death and burial. She's only using what she has to show devotion to Jesus in an extravagant and beautiful way. For whatever reason, this woman is having a mountaintop experience, even as Jesus himself approaches the valley. As the song we're going to sing shortly will put it, she is in the highlands while Jesus is in the heartache. She's in the highlands while Jesus is in the heartache. A month ago, most of us were in the highlands. 
The economy was strong. We had jobs. We could lead relatively normal lives, but now, not so much. Now we are in the midst of a heartache. And whether we are in the highlands or in the heartache, we are called to do and to create beautiful things, beautiful moments. We are, we are called to pour out our devotion and worship to Jesus because Jesus alone is our reason to do so and he is worthy of our praise. It does not depend on our circumstance. You can bring your circumstance to Jesus. You can pour out your heartache to Jesus. Please don't misunderstand me. But even in the midst of that heartache and trial, we can still worship Jesus. We can still pour our devotion on Jesus because he is worthy of our praise. And it is good that we do so for, for Jesus and for us. While this season of crisis is indeed the heartache for many of us, I am also hopeful. I'm also hopeful and certain that God is at work in these things. The Father God can and will meet us, is already meeting us, just as he met Jesus in the midst of his heartache. I also believe that these times provide the opportunity for us to pour out our devotion to God like perfume on the head of Jesus in the passage. And I encourage us all to ask what that might look like for us. How can we express our devotion to Jesus during this time? How can we praise God both on that mountaintop and when the mountain is in our way? To the question we began with, does it do any good to create or do beautiful things in the midst of such a crisis? The answer is yes, absolutely a thousand times yes. It does do good, especially when we do those things as acts of devotion and worship for Jesus. So show our, show, how shall we show our worship and our devotion to Jesus at this critical time? How are we supposed to do that? Let me just offer a couple of options. First, let us not neglect, friends, let us not neglect the care of our souls. I mean, more time at home gives us opportunity. It can also be the opportunity to binge watch a few things on Netflix. About day three into this partial shutdown, I, I, I told Kim, okay, I thought it's going to be really nice to be at home every evening. No more night meetings, but we've got to do something other than watch TV every night because I'm getting, TV every night because I'm, I'm, I'm getting depressed. Now, that is not to say that it's wrong to be entertained. It's not wrong that we should feel badly or guilty about wanting a good distraction. Not at all. I, for one, am grateful that this week uh, CBS All Access just gave out a month free so I can watch all the episodes of Star Trek Picard. Reminds me of uh, something someone posted this week about being in quarantine. They said, quote, This quarantine made me realize that I have no real hobbies besides going out to eat and spending money. I get that. So last week, Kim and I joined the prayer meeting that takes place each Wednesday evening via Zoom here at ECC. And we invite you to join us by going to our website, ecclife.net, and clicking on How to Connect. There are virtual prayer meetings on both Wednesday and Thursday evenings via Zoom each week. I also think this is a good time for us to develop deeper and stronger and richer devotional practices. Spend more time in Scripture, friends. Never memorized a passage of Scripture before? Maybe now is the time to try your hand at that. Spend more time in silence and prayer. Extravagant, wasteful, beautiful time. I'm including in the Bible app live event this week several prayers that we can pray during this time. Let the offer of your time be one of the ways you break open and pour expensive perfume on the head of Jesus. Likewise, as we learned last week, 
Love of God is tightly woven into and with love of neighbor. We can love and worship God by loving our neighbors, our neighbors who are nearby, our neighbors who are far away, our neighbors who are part of ECC, and those who are not part of any faith at all. Call them. Pray for them. For those who can, I ask how you can care for the elderly or the at-risk in your neighborhood or in your congregation. Or congregation. I already see that kind of thing happening. I think it is, as Jesus says in our passage, a beautiful thing. We do for others these beautiful things, and in doing for others, we are also doing these things for him. Perhaps, like me, you have been moved by some of the, the praise and the thanksgiving, the gratitude that's being shown our healthcare workers, like in Vancouver and now in Atlanta, where every night at about 7 p.m. when the healthcare workers' shift changes happen, people come out on the balconies of their apartments and they shout and they cheer and they make noise and they bang pots and pans together. They're pouring out their devotion upon those who are risking their lives. I think that too can be done in devotion to Jesus, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. The bottom line is that you don't need me to tell you how you can show your devotion to Jesus. You're all quite capable of figuring that out on your own. I encourage you to do that. Let, let me pray for us that we will all do just that in the weeks to come, that we will come to know deep within our hearts that when it seems the world is falling apart or coming to an end, that is exactly the time we need to plant roses. That is exactly the time we need to pour out our devotion to Jesus upon him, upon one another, and upon our neighbors. That is the time to do beautiful things and to create beautiful moments, whether we are in the highlands or in the heartache. Why? Because Jesus alone is reason for our worship and devotion. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we thank you for this beautiful picture of the woman who pours out the perfume upon the head of Jesus. We thank you for what it meant to Jesus when it happened. We thank you, Lord God, for the demonstration she gives to all of us that we would take whatever we have, and now we have time, Lord, and now we have our worries and our anxieties Lord, we take all of it and we would pour it out on you in prayer, in silence, in solitude, in care for our neighbors. Lord, help us to know how to be devoted to you, how to worship you fully in the midst of the heartache we find ourselves in in this nation right now. And help us, Lord, again together to come to the highlands, to see, Lord God, this pandemic come to an end, to see people healed, healed, to see people comforted. Give wisdom to all those who are working hard to see it happen. We give ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. We give ourselves to you. We pray that you would be glorified and magnified and blessed by how we pray, how we pour out our devotion, how we live our lives in the days and weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen.